Hi, this is Steve Nerlich. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 109, Planets. Planets are things that everyone thinks they know about, but they are actually quite difficult to define. For example, you know you're in trouble when you have to appeal to hydrostatic equilibrium as a defining characteristic. You could just say they're big and round and achieve the same level of understanding. But an international organisation responsible for naming astronomical things can't make it that easy. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What Happens When Worlds Collide? The outcome of a collision between two planets depends on the speed of the collision, the angle of the collision, the relative masses of the two bodies, and their composition. Here think rocky planets versus gas giants. A small planet approaching a large planet slowly might get tidally stretched and break up into pieces, but a fast-moving planet on a collision course might impact before there's been time for gravitational stretching to break it up. And also, a slow planet approaching another planet on an oblique angle might end up in orbit around that other planet, or more correctly, both planets would end up orbiting around their common centre of mass. That orbit would decay over time, and the planets would eventually collide and merge, but that could take thousands, if not millions of years, depending on various factors. But a fast-moving planet travelling at an oblique angle towards another planet might just chip a bit of the edge off the other one, and if it retains enough escape velocity, it would then just keep on going. Putting appearances to one side, there actually isn't that much difference in the physics of collisions between two gas giants, or between two rocky planets, or between a gas giant and a rocky planet. Head-on collisions of planets of approximately equal size will result in a merger, although a lot of debris will be produced, which might be either rocky debris or gas debris. In either case, if that debris is flung out with enough force to achieve escape velocity, it will be flung out, while other slower material may just go into orbit, eventually to coalesce back into the newly merged planet, or perhaps remain in orbit to form one or more moons. On the other hand, if one planet approaches the other at an oblique angle, there will be some mutual damage in the form of blown-out rock, or blown out gas, but less likelihood of a merger. Observations of young stellar systems show evidence of multiple collisions. Most of those collisions result in mergers, but also produce huge amounts of debris, rocky or gaseous. It's only as a stellar system matures that dominant objects begin to clear their orbits of both other planetesimals and finer debris. So, in fact, the earlier narrative in this podcast described a number of quite unlikely scenarios. Once a large spherical body clears its orbit to fit the proper definition of a planet, the chance of any further collisions with objects of equivalent size is pretty remote. So, looking around our own solar system, 
there's really no likelihood of any planetary collisions occurring in the foreseeable future. But that said, the only explanation we have for Venus's incredibly slow 243-day rotation in the wrong direction is that it underwent a past collision. Uranus also presumably received a large smack at some point in its history so that it now rotates on its side. And of course, we're pretty sure a proto-Earth collided with something Mars-sized, producing the Earth-Moon system we know today. Those two early and rocky objects probably did collide head-on, hence merging, but also throwing out huge chunks of debris, which went into orbit and later coalesced into the Moon. That said, though, it's equally possible there was something Mars-sized in Earth's orbit, and something more on Earth scale came along and collided with it. Indeed, probably neither object was exactly in Earth's orbit, since the merged product of that collision would have gained a different mass and a slightly different orbital trajectory than either of its progenitors had. So it doesn't really make sense to think of one as the Collider and the other as the Collide. It's more the case that two things collided and the Earth-Moon system emerged from the rubble. We also know that both Jupiter and Saturn, although gas giants of predominantly hydrogen and helium, do have higher levels of heavier elements than the Sun does, suggesting that they didn't just emerge out of the original dust cloud that the solar system formed from, but instead probably either merged with, or gobbled up, other orbiting planetesimals, thereby ingesting already concentrated packets of heavier elements. So, in conclusion, it's actually very unlikely that proper planets ever collide, but pre-planetary bodies, they do it all the time. This is the middle bit. So that story clearly shows that orbiting the sun, as well as clearing your orbit, are defining characteristics of a planet. And isn't that enough? Do we really need another rule that says you might be orbiting the sun and you might have cleared your orbit, but if you're a dodecahedron, then forget it. It's a redundant qualification. You don't need it. <sighs> Sorry, let's do another question. Dear Cheap Astronomy, why is Mars's sky red? A good place to start is to consider the colours we are familiar with in Earth's sky. In the middle of the day on Earth, the overhead sun is a bright white disk you can't look at directly, and the rest of the sky is blue. This is because most of the visible light from the sun passes straight through the atmosphere, which is transparent to those wavelengths, except at the very short end. So rather than passing straight through, Photons in the blue and violet parts of the visible spectrum are scattered, meaning they are deflected off their straight-line path and bounce around a bit, although most do eventually reach the ground. So, because of all that scattering, the atmosphere, and hence the sky, gets lit up blue. However, at sunrise and sunset, the light from the sun has to travel a longer path through atmosphere before it reaches your eye, so all the blue gets scattered away 
And the only light that does make it through to your eye is the longer wavelengths orange and red. The scattered blue light does still make it through, which is why if you look away from the sunset, the rest of the sky is still blue. But at sunset, that blue is starting to dim and a few bright stars and planets start to shine through. If you're on the moon, the overhead sun is that same intense white disk, but the sky around it is just the black of space. Because there's no atmosphere, there's nothing to scatter light and nothing to reflect light off. You can cast shadows on the moon, just like you do on Earth, but a shadow on the moon is pitch black, while on Earth, shadows are just dark. Because on Earth, the lighting up of the whole atmosphere means there's always some light coming from all directions, not just direct from the Sun. So now, let's think about Mars. It has got an atmosphere, but not much of an atmosphere. With less than 1% of Earth's atmospheric pressure at its surface. But what Mars's atmosphere does have, that Earth's generally doesn't, is dust. Earth can hold a lot of dust in its atmosphere, and when there is a lot of dust, the sky goes red, or brown, or grey, but this generally doesn't last long, because Earth's atmosphere also has water vapour in it, which will readily adhere to dust particles, sticking them together into clumps, which become too heavy to remain airborne, and of course one solid downpour of rain will take all the dust out of the sky in a matter of minutes. But on dry, dusty Mars, the dust just hangs in the air. And those large particles of dust don't scatter blue. They absorb blue light completely. Same goes for greens and yellows. It's only the longest wavelengths of visible light that get reflected off dust. That is, the oranges, pinks and reds. If you could take all the dust out of Mars's sky, it would be blue. Although, because the atmosphere is so thin, it would be a very faint blue. But at sunrise and sunset, where the sunlight has to travel through a greater distance of atmosphere, you start seeing a more intense blue. So if we now put the dust back in the sky, those dust particles are substantial enough to scatter and reflect lots of light, and hence makes the sky a lot brighter, although with a reddish colour. Nonetheless, at sunrise and sunset, the longer light path through the atmosphere, coupled with the more intense light that is coming directly from the sun, means that just around the sun's disk, the atmosphere lights up just enough to overcome the reddish colour of the dust. And so on Mars, you do get blue-hazed sunrises and sunsets. The key physical principle with all this is the dominant particle size in the atmosphere. So with no atmosphere, the sky is black, but with the dense but small particles of Earth's atmosphere, which includes ice crystals, the sky becomes a quite intense blue. But on Mars, the bigger atmospheric particles of dust are larger than the wavelength of blue light, and so absorb the blue and just reflect red. But calling it red or pink is a bit of an oversimplification. We know from Mars rover photos that the Martian sky colour varies quite a lot, depending on dust density and the elevation of the sun, 
And it's probably also the case that some of the photos you've seen are colour adjusted. These days we're pretty sure the average sky colour on Mars is actually butterscotch, an orangey tan colour. And you probably get some blue wispy clouds, being clouds with tiny amounts of water ice crystals, not enough to give you the all colour reflecting whites of Earth's clouds, but close to it. So, Mars's sky, dusty, but potentially pretty. Well, maybe. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Planets are awesome, they go around the sun, and they clear their orbits. And no one actually needs to say they're big and round. They freaking have to be. If you did want to make an actual differential definition, you could say that a planet has to be bigger than Pluto, which is, of course, just a dwarf planet, meaning that it's a bit big and round, but not big and round enough to have cleared its orbit. And there it is again. The terminological distinction dwarf isn't actually a definitional distinction, because the definitional distinction is to be able to clear your orbit, which a planet can, but a dwarf planet can't. So again, why even bother talking about the size? <sighs> but that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to express your frustration at some needlessly convoluted guidelines, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll do the ranting for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.